Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. There are many interesting things happening in and around the field of pathology. And on this podcast, I speak with the people who are doing those things. Today, we're talking about placentas. So I'm very excited to have on the show perinatal pathologist, Dr. Drusilla Roberts. We'll hear from Dr. Roberts about how she got involved in pathology outreach in sub-Saharan Africa and how she organized a pathology conference there. We'll hear about her involvement in the Human Placenta Project and about her recent pathcast on placental pathology. We'll talk a bit about her involvement in the Placental and Gestational Pathology textbook. And we'll talk about some of the early research on COVID-19 and its effect on the placenta. Okay, here's Dr. Drusilla Roberts. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to get started with, you uh, specialize in perinatal pathology. I wanted to know, could you tell me how you got interested in that specialty? Well, I started out my training in OBGYN, and I'll never forget the day that I delivered um, a monochorionic twin gestation where one of oh. the twins was a, um, a cardiac twin. Oh, and it wow. was so traumatic for me and for the family. And all I wanted to do was to be able to explain to the family what happened and what the chances of it happening again were. Right. And this was about the same time as the Hox gene story came out about pattern formation. And it was a very exciting time in developmental biology. And um, at the time, I thought the only place where I could really address these questions was as a pathologist and not as an obstetrician. So I switched to anatomic pathology and okay. um, specialized. I kind of focused in perinatal pathology from the start. So about what, what time period is this? This was in the um, late 80s, early 90s. Oh, all right. Okay. A long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not for Unfortunately. some of us. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, you're a very big proponent of pathology outreach to underserved areas, particularly Africa, I believe. Um, and I know you've written extensively about this. Why do you feel that's important? Well, um, so somebody very smart, smarter than me, once said that most of the pathology in the world is in underserved regions uh, like sub-Saharan Africa, whereas most of the pathologists in the world are in well-served areas like the United States. Right. And I just felt the inequity of, of uh, lack of pathology services, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, was egregious and that I might be able to have a small effect in improving pathology services there. Okay. Um, and so I started, well, it kind of also fell after I went there as a tourist. And I feel like, you know, even though it does help the economy, that I shouldn't just go there as a tourist, but I should try to give back something. And oh. that's how I got interested in um in capacity building in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. So you went there first as, as a tourist. What, what country did you go to? Tanzania. Okay. And then how long was it before you went back again to, to, to do pathology? Uh, well, so in, 
after the Tanzania trip, two big things happened in my life. I adopted two children from Ethiopia, oh. and that was an amazing experience, but it also made me all the more want to give back. And um, sure. I was in a big international study on women and infant transmission of HIV. And during that time of um, that study, it became clear that treating women in the peripartum period decreased transmission of HIV. So all the cases um, in the in the developed countries kind of dried up because they were all being treated and there was hardly any transmission. So the only place where there was a lot of transmission was in uh, underserved countries like Sub-Saharan Africa. And I always felt like it was uh, unethical to do that study, which cost a lot of money, mm -hmm. instead of treating the women when we knew that it had some benefit. So those two big things made me want to do something in to help or okay. to, uh, and so it, it was maybe five years after my um, safari trip that I started trying to think of, of ways to give back to um, Sub-Saharan Africa. But it was, you know, I think the, my first foray, other than as a scientist, was when I went in 2011 to give that course. Okay. And you're referring to the course that was through Harvard, correct? Right. It was the first um, Harvard CME course in Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. And it was on the, uh, it was titled The Contribution of Anatomic Pathology to the Health of Women and Children. and um, I did that course because, um, as you know, pathologists go to a lot of courses and our annual meeting, and right. you just never see people from Africa at these meetings because they just can't afford it, number one, or number two, there's no one to cover them when they, so they can't go to meetings. Oh, and sure. it's, I thought that it, decreases um, enjoyment in your work to not work with colleagues and to continue your education. And that if I had a course in Africa, maybe that was free or cheap, that um, I would get a big participation from these pathologists who are relatively underrepresented in other courses and other meetings. So I did the course in Ethiopia because I was most familiar with Ethiopia at the time. And it was, you know, an amazing experience. So uh, how much participation did you get? Like, do you remember how many uh, pathologists from Ethiopia attended the course? All the pathologists from Ethiopia attended the course, but there are not that many. But we had more than 100 participants oh, wow. at the course. So it was pretty well attended. And we had, you know, a really great faculty and the faculty all came on their own dime. So there was no financial uh, assistance for the faculty. So this was all uh, donated time and energy. And we got a grant to um, cover most of the participants to come, which was extremely helpful. And my department right. also contributed some money to the course. So that's how we could make it happen. And 
I was very much hoping that people other than sub-Saharan Africans would come to the course from developed countries, but we didn't get very many of those paying okay. customers. <laughs> so <laughs> it was mainly um, it was mainly from Africans from sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. I imagine there might have been some challenges in, in putting a course together in a, in a different country. Was there anything like that? Did you get pushback from the uh, local government or anything like that? No, there was a lot of acceptance and a lot of excitement um, okay. to host the course. So that was great. And advertising went really well. And Harvard Department of Continuing Medical Education was very supportive the faculty was great. Uh, a couple mm -hmm. of them had to drop out for various reasons, and we did tele um, conference, so they remotely gave their lectures, and that worked out well. Oh, okay. But there were, uh, uh, you know, they had that was before it could be live tele streamed, so they recorded their talks and had to FedEx it to Addis Ababa, and I had to get the, their FedEx tapes to be able to project. So that was challenging. Uh -huh. And um, the other thing that happened is that we had a big um, welcome dinner and okay. the next day everyone was sick. So that oh, wow. was a challenge, and mm -hmm. including some of the speakers. One of the speakers, Dr. David Wilbur, who's a very well-known cytopathologist and GYN pathologist, actually gave his lecture lying down on the floor. Oh, oh wow! Because he, because he was so dizzy standing up, but that was the level of dedication to to providing this uh, course. Okay, that was really remarkable. Wow! Have you had the course again, or was it just the one time? I gave it twice again: once in Nairobi and once in Abuja, Nigeria. Wow. Okay. Do you think? It, would it be an option, you know, these days with, like you mentioned, the, the tele, uh, teleconferencing, is that, would that be an option for a place like Ethiopia or other places in Africa? Yeah, we were going, so I was going to give this course again in September in Nigeria again, but, and many of the speakers were going to do the live stream lectures, uh, but because of the pandemic, it got canceled. But sure. I do think that that's a possibility. But there's something to be said about being there in person and the face-to-face -face, um, interaction with the participants. It um, means a lot to the participants that somebody would make the effort to go and be there with them. But that being said, the, the dearth of opportunities for continuing medical education there is greater than the availability of, of doing these in-person conferences. And so telepathology and live stream lectures, I think is going to be the future. Okay. That makes sense. I wanted to move on next to the, the human placenta project. I was reading a little bit about this and you're, you were very, you are very involved with that. Can you tell me what is this project and what does it, what does it do? Well, it's the project is done, um, but it was okay. an NICHD project that was interested in two aspects of perinatal care. One was mainly focused on the placenta, of course. So one was understanding the development of the placenta in a basic science kind of way. And the other one was to be able to 
come up with novel ways to make diagnoses in the placenta in real time so that new uh, therapeutics and interventions could be made before a bad outcome happens. Because right now, um, as you know, the, we examine the placenta after birth. So it's kind of after right. the fact. And, mm -hmm. and we, there's a lot of things that placenta can tell us, but it's after the fact. So it does give prognosis for the baby. Then it explains uh, a stillbirth uh, in most of cases. Right. But um, the HPP was, is really designed to discover placental pathologies during gestation so that interventions can occur before a bad outcome happens. Right. And they used MRI and, and things like that. During... Yeah, a lot of novel imaging techniques were played a paramount role in, in the funded projects from this. Uh, and that's one that I'm on is an MRI related multidisciplinary okay. project. But there are other MRI projects, ultrasound uh, projects as well. And so what was your role then? So this was with Ellen Grant, who's a very well-known uh, MRI radiologist at Boston Children's Hospital. And she uh, got together a, a group, including um, Bill Barth, who's uh, an, a maternal fetal medicine specialist here at the Mass General, a few well-known uh, MRI physicists, and the my part of the project was to devise an ex vivo placental perfusion culture system. So we would get the placenta again after the fact, mm -hmm. keep it alive and uh, perfuse it and image it. And the idea was to be able to correlate the images that we see with the pathology so that imaging in vivo, uh, we would know what imaging findings meant um, okay. ex vivo and also to perturb, perturb the system so that um, we can affect changes in perfusion of the placenta and see what the imaging correlates of that would be. And it turned out to be a very daunting project. In three years, we just got it up and running. So it's doable. It's okay. very hard. Uh, but it has a lot of promise. Okay. And so that's still ongoing? Yes. And the the group is still working on in vivo studies of the placenta as well. So the ex vivo is kind of on hold right now for funding reasons, mm, but we okay. plan to bring it back um, to active uh, study um, by the end of the year. As I was looking through the, the HPP website, one of the quotes on there, it said the placenta is arguably one of the most important organs in the body, and it influences not just the health of a woman and her fetus during pregnancy, but also the lifelong health of both the mother and child. I'm interested, what, what kind of things, like what, what, what does that mean, that the lifelong health? What kind of things does it influence? Well, there are things that we can see in the placenta that relate to risks of ultimate health outcomes like um, obesity, diabetes, neural compromise in the, in the infant. Mm -hmm. um, those are all, we think, related to placental pathology or placental function or dysfunction in utero. So there's a lot of interest in 
the ultimate health outcomes that can be predicted by examining the placenta. I think that's what that paragraph is referring to. Okay. Do you think things like these, you know, I remember back in, back in the 90s, say, placenta pathology wasn't that interesting. You know, not, not a lot of people took the placenta very seriously, I think. And, and these days it's becoming more, more prevalent, I guess. Do you think findings like this uh, help to promote that? I think so, but there's a lot of things that um, I think have gone on since you know the 80s and 90s about placentas, but sure. it still is a very underutilized organ for pathology. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, it's usually the last uh, specimen that is examined in the lab. They put it off because they think it's not um, that clinically useful. Mm. And there aren't that many things in the placenta that require immediate clinical intervention, but those that are there are really striking. Right. And so the placenta really should be examined promptly, just like any other tissues. But the medical legal aspects of placental pathology is something that has also become highlighted in the last few decades. Yes. And um this Barker hypothesis of the developmental uh, precedence of uh, outcomes has be, has gained a lot of press. So I think that examining the placenta now is um, is of more interest to the pathologist and more useful for the obstetrician and the pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So recently, you did a Categories of Placental Pathology Pathcast, which is actually how I found out about you. Um, mm. yeah, that was just a couple of weeks ago. How did you become a presenter for that Pathcast? And how did you decide what to present? Well, it wasn't. Um, I was just lucky that Dr. Emilio Madrigal, who is a co-founder and the host of Pathcast, mm -hmm. is in our department. Oh. And so he just asked me, he said that that they've never had anything like a placental pathology pathcast, and would I be interested in doing it? And I said, sure. And I had already scanned in a bunch of very um, informative cases to use, and I thought I could start off with those in these broad categories that I think would be helpful for pathologists to think about when they approach a placenta um, for histopathology, gross and histopathology. So that's how it it all came about. Okay. And I noticed it was titled part one. Um, I'm curious, do you think there'll be a part two? I hope so. Yep. Okay, good. Me too. It was, <laughs> Thanks. It was, it was very interesting. I, I liked it a lot. All right. Let's talk about the, the textbook, the placental and gestational pathology book. Uh, you are co-editor of this book and I know you've, you've authored chapters in other books as well. And you authored a few in, in this book. So th there's, there are several placental textbooks out there. Why make another one? How is this one different? Yeah, there's, um, there's a plethora of placental books now, and I just right. finished writing one for the, the old AFIP tumor, non-tumor atlas. So that's coming out this year too. So there'll be yet another one. Oh, um, I'll look forward to that. <laughs> thanks. So this one that I did with uh, Ray Redline and Theonia Boyd, 
Ray Redline was approached to write this book, and he wanted to write a book using the um, recently published Amsterdam Consensus Criteria, which provides nosology and um, specific diagnostic criteria for placental pathology, which had been lacking um, before. So he wanted to write a book that would use that new terminology uh, okay. and have a very practical book for trainees as well as, you know, um, private practice pathologists and academic pathologists. So that was his goal to, to use the new terminology. But he also wanted to kind of build on uh, his and my mentor, who was Shirley Driscoll, mm -hmm. um, kind of the um, mother, we say Kurt Bernerschka is the father and Shirley Driscoll is the mother of placental pathology. And she trained um, both of us and he trained me. So I'm kind of, he was also a mentor of mine. So, um, and then Theonia trained at our same institution. So we all kind of have the Shirley Driscoll way of approaching placental reporting and examination. Okay. So that was the genesis of the book. And he specifically, when he was approached, he told them that, that he wanted to have us as co-authors or co-editors and, um, and have the book be an edited book and not uh, a single author or, or small group author book to have different um, approaches, although he wanted to have the overall, the overarching uh, approach be the Shirley Driscoll one. Okay. Uh, so what, what was it like being an editor as opposed to an author? Uh, how was that different? Hey, you know, it wasn't that different. I learned a lot. So I wrote my chapters and they were also edited by Theonia or Ray and I edited theirs. And okay. then we invited authors to write chapters and they were kind of divvied up for us to edit as well. And, you know, these were all very well-respected, well-published and well-known placental people. Mm -hmm. So uh, the editing was very easy. Um, it was just making sure that they kept kind of within the Amsterdam criteria and kind of had the Shirley Driscoll approach. Uh, okay. The overall approach. So it was great, actually. Okay. So two, two of the features of the book that I really like, one is the, the photos, both the, the gross and microscopic, the, fo the photos are amazing. I really enjoyed those. And then there's a, in every section of the book, there's a, it's called knowledge gaps. What does that mean? And why was that important to include in the book? So the book is a part of a series and that's included in the series, these knowledge gaps. But I think it's important for us to admit what we don't know uh -huh. about the placenta. And so much of the placenta is based on experience, anecdotal experience of a very few placental pathologists. It's nice that we all kind of came to the same conclusion and the, the studies that are out there bolster our conclusion. So that's nice, but it's um, meant to be humble, to admit what we don't know, and also to stimulate research. So okay. people can read and say, oh, so this really isn't known and maybe I can study it. I see. Uh, you mentioned several times, and it's it's in the book as well, the, the Amsterdam International Consensus Group. What is this group uh, and uh, what what is the consensus? 
I know there was a paper on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's an excellent paper. And I recommend it to everyone. Um, mm-hmm. It's in the archives. It was a group of perinatal pathologists that met in uh, Italy over a few days to come up with a consensus diagnostic criteria for categories of placental pathology. Now, consensus wasn't always reached, but for the most part it was. And uh, they came up with terminology and definitions, staging and grading, stuff that will make placental pathology be more reproducible in, for studies, comparable across studies. And so they published um, their findings. And then uh, uh, there's a follow-up book by the same group that okay. I also wrote a couple of chapters in called Pathology of the Placenta. Unfortunately, I wasn't in this group that met in Italy. They had a great time, but I was giving my course in Nairobi at the same time. So oh, I right. was I was in Nairobi. Okay. I will, uh, uh, in the show notes for this episode, I'll put a link to the article and, and the book as well. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. And then the last the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is a bit, bit more of a timely issue, I guess. Can we talk about the placenta and... And COVID nineteen does does the virus infect the placenta, and what sort of effects will it have on the baby? Do do we okay. know anything about this? So there's not that much data out there because the pandemic is is um, so recent, and right. uh, it is ongoing. But the deliveries that have happened to women who are infected with COVID nineteen so far, the, there's been no. Sp- specific histopathology associated with it. There's been a variety of things described from fetal vascular malperfusion, increased perivillous fibrin, chronic histiocytic intervillocytis, but nothing that you would um, characterize as known to be associated with viral infections of the placenta. Okay. And for con- vertical transmission, there's it's controversial. And I have, there's this new JAMA article out about a, a case that's pretty well vetted that does seem to be a true transmitter case. I have seen one that I believe is a true transmitter case, and that hopefully will be published as a, a case report, um, not by me, but by the pathologist involved. And that baby was COVID-19 positive, as was the mom. Um, okay. But if it... So I do think it happens. I think it's very rare. And it would be very interesting to figure out why it's so rare and what are the features that would suggest that there's been transmission since we're seeing a lot of placentas from COVID-positive moms. Right. Uh, and not really seeing that much histopathology. So is it only the very sick moms or the moms that have a high viral load or moms who got sick before the peripartum period or only moms that got sick at the peripartum period. You know, these are f- clinical things that need to be uh, addressed for the very rare cases of transmission. So have you actually seen placentas that that show infection by the virus? Like what what kind of features uh, would you see in the in the sections? Well, the one transmitter that I did see that in review right now for a, a publication, mm-hmm. uh, the placenta itself was unremarkable. You really? know, it was a normal sized placenta. It didn't have chronic velitis. It didn't have histiocytis, intervillocytis, sorry. It had a, 
it didn't have decidual inflammation. So it didn't have the, the characteristic features that we see with, uh, with, uh, hematogenously spread viral infections. But this is an RNA virus and the other RNA viruses that can infect the placenta or can cross the placenta, they don't leave a footprint. Most of them don't leave a footprint either. So it might be something to do with the type of virus. But in this case, we did in situ hybridization for the viral RNA and it was flaming. So really? it was definitely in the villus trophoblasts. So whether or not this baby got the infection transplacentally or got it, you know, soon after delivery, it's it's hard to know, but it was definitely in the placenta. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's scary that it doesn't leave a footprint, so it's it's hard to know. And this mom wasn't she had mild to moderate symptoms. She she wasn't a very sick mother. Okay. I was just wondering because uh, you know I've told you I'm I'm a I'm a PA and I was just wondering if you know while grossing a placenta if there was something that that I would see you know that would suggest yeah I wish right <laughs> there right. doesn't seem to be right. yeah. yeah but you still should keep you know precautions when you're examining they should still be fixed for at least 24 hours and right or an N95 when you're handling it fresh right of course. It, it seems like this is going to be a pretty hot area of research kind of after all of this sort of right. dies down. Um, I'm collecting a series and looking at the receptors and the virus in, in placentas. And I've never been in such a competitive arena before, even when I was a developmental biologist looking at sonic hedgehog and pattern formation, which was pretty competitive. This outstrips uh -huh. that by far. So it's a very fast moving field. A lot of people are, are very interested in the perinatal um, aspects of COVID-19. And I think there's going to be a lot of publications coming out very quickly. Right. Great. I, I look forward to those. Is, is there anything else that I, uh, that I haven't asked you that you, that you <laughs> wanted to mention? No, I just hope that people listening, you know, have a respect for the placenta and for what it, it can teach us. And, um, and that I, I always like to tell people that I'm very open to email consultations. So if you have something that you want to email me about, you can provide my email. Um, okay. Uh, I can put that in the show notes if you like. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. So that if people have questions or want to send me a picture of something, I'm happy to help out if I can, because there's just not that many perinatal pathologists, um, in this country. Um, so I'm happy to provide that service to people if, if they so choose. Oh, great. Okay. Thank you. You know, placentas uh, for me, they're one of my favorite specimens. So I was, it's a, it's a joy to be able to talk with someone else who, who feels the same way about them. <laughs> who loves the placenta. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so th thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Big thanks to Dr. Drusilla Roberts. And as I mentioned during the episode, placentas really are one of my favorite tissue specimens. So I really enjoyed speaking with her. That was a lot of fun. Definitely check out the show notes for this episode. I'll have links to all of the things we talked about. Uh, and that can be found at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at peopleofpath. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and on Podbean, and leave me a rating and review and let me know what you think. 
I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.